0: of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? This is
1: my country, and I'm proud to call
0: it This is my country, and I'll never stand alone. It's time for populism with a purpose. Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Courtney. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician, and she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and post-partisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy.
2: And welcome to this beautiful, spring-like Sunday morning. It's just gorgeous. Um, I'm just... Literally sliding into the chair off an airplane from Las Vegas, where I spent the weekend at the Republican Jewish Coalition meeting, and many of you who are listening know that both President Trump and Vice President Pence, along with a host of others from Washington, um, were there over the weekend. So we're going to be a little different today. Um, we're going to we're going to stay with. The themes of this program, yeah, I'm a businesswoman, not a politician, so I'm a pragmatist, um, and that falls into this weekend's this discussion of what I learned this weekend. Um, and yes, I worry that as the uh, previous news broadcast said that um, there is too much left and right bias in the media. There are a whole lot of people out there busily trying to inflame your passions. On, I was reading comments in the Washington Post this morning. We people are fired up on both sides of the aisle. Um, and my purpose is different. I want to give you the information that you need to be able to make an independent judgment and then act on that judgment, whether it means um, volunteering for a campaign in 2020 or um, giving a few dollars, if you can, to a candidate that you believe in, whether it's local, statewide, or national. Um, And so we're going to take a few minutes. We're going to spend most of the hour today Uh, And we'll make this a little interactive. We'll open the line in just a minute. Um, And we're going to talk a little about what I heard and what my impressions were. Um, Not a secret that I speak my mind in that group. Um, And so here's the first thing I'm going to tell you. Um, I was there from Friday to Sunday. And the two words I never heard were... Muller report. It just didn't exist in this particular environment. Um, I felt really, really safe because um, I was in the elevator on Friday going back up to my room when I realized I was in the same elevator as all the big you know, gun cases for the FBI, for the Secret Service agents. So they were on the same floor as me. So I I, I slept really well. Um, so, number one, the Mueller report, you did not hear those words. And this is a crowd um, of people, a growing group of people who um are enthusiastic supporters of uh President Trump. Many of the people I spoke with, you know, were were reluctant in 16 or voted for other candidates. He actually appeared um in a um pre-primary candidate forum that that um the RJC held in Washington D.C. and I can tell you because I was there that if he was not the best received Um, candidate on that stage that there was a whole lot of skepticism and actually that particular day the best received candidate was chris christie chris christie is still the best retail politician in the business but he's getting some competition from some of the people i listened to this weekend (laughs) so uh setting chris aside because uh It may be that Bridgegate ended his presidential um, ambitions, although um, his book um, certainly indicates, if you read it carefully, uh, both his frustration and his ambition. But setting him aside, I'm just going to say that Donald Trump was not the favorite candidate in 2015 or in early 2016 that – But that certainly has changed. And this week, um, he was lionized by this group. It was very interesting. There were uh, probably a thousand of us who are members of the RJC who attended the conference. And then they had um, local people as well um, in the audience. And in the middle of you know, the group up front, all of us in in uh, suit and tie or, you know, business attire. Um, and so we were up in the front. There was a huge media presence, an enormous media presence, not a lot of big-name anchors. You know, there were White House pool reporters that you've never seen. But that's because they write the story and somebody with the— face went on national television to describe the event. Um, and behind them, they had this mass of, you know, they had people who came, you know, as as invited um, guests, but not as RJC people who are local to the Nevada uh, marketplace. And um, – It was extremely interesting. It was a very loud crowd. Um, I've got some video, and they posted on the website at reimagineamerica.org. And it was a love fest. Um, And you know what? You get caught up in it. You know, I have my issues with the president, and we're going to talk about those in a minute in terms of what he presented but you get caught up in that environment, you get I get the rally thing. It it energizes him enormously. Um but that energy goes both ways. You had wave after wave of, you know, standing ovations throughout the speech and people waving signs and and wearing um, Trump gear, and it was, um, it was not the way we normally behave in that organization. Um, it was well beyond—it it, was—well, they called it a rally. So what did the president talk about? Well, he talked about two things that we should talk about today. Um, one is the obvious outreach in the Republican Jewish coalition is around Israel— And I'm a two-state solution uh, person and have been for a very long time. Um, My background and I have family in Israel um, tell me that we need a Jewish homeland, but we must also be respectful of our Palestinian neighbors so that they can have a vibrant society of their own that they can live in peace alongside each other that they can have vibrant economic relations as Israel does with Jordan and with Egypt and with a whole lot of other countries. So, um, and and I'm probably find myself, as I often do, in the middle of American political thought on that subject. I think there is widespread support in the United States for a two-state solution, and um, Um, Tom Friedman wrote a piece in the New York Times not long ago in which he explained why the occupied territories need to become part of of a Palestinian state um, in a way which is different, uh, but it speaks to the same concerns that I have, which is if you had a one-state solution, you would lose that sanctuary that we very apparently need, if you look at anti-Semitism around the world, you know, for a Jewish homeland. Over time, it would be one state solution would eclipse that idea. So why don't we take a quick commercial break, and then I'm going to talk specifically about what President Trump said. We'll talk a little about what what Vice President Pence said, and also Majority Leader McCarthy.
0: You're listening to Reimagine America on 8:60 a.m. The Answer. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy.
2: So let's talk a little bit about what was said. What did the president say? Uh, what has the president done? And why is some of that really good and some of it perhaps not so good? So it's been you know it's been a republican um argument for some time that since the israeli government seat really is in the old city of jerusalem um that's been heavily excavated and is accurately you know the seat of, of the jewish religion um and the path that jesus took um both in life and in his um walk um under the weight of the cross um <clears throat> so a lot of presidents um both bushes um and and others have promised to move the american embassy to, from tel aviv where most of the embassies international embassies are to jerusalem well um by, creating a new ambassador's office in the consulate in Jerusalem. Um, President Trump made good on that promise. And, And we all know that one of the president's goals is to do the things he promised in his 2016 campaign that he would do. So that's done. But it was done... Without the assent of Congress, he has also. Um, we we did pay it pass the T- Taylor Force Act that was passed by Congress, um, and that cuts off money to the PLO um, because they use that money to pay the families of terrorists to martyr themselves, uh, as they martyred. Taylor Force, who was a U.S. national visiting Israel, a a veteran of the United States military who was stabbed to death on a Tel Aviv street while out for an evening walk. So that's been done. Um, The president went further, though. The president closed the PLO, quote, embassy or, you know, mission, whatever you want to call it, in Washington, D.C., The president withdrew from the U.N. Human Rights Council because of their anti-Semitic, anti-Israel positions. Uh, So we're not giving money to them. We've cut off a certain amount of funding that we give to the U.N. to support humanitarian services in the Gaza. Um, And uh, we've, you know, they're they're just, you know, a, a whole series of actions none of which, none of which have been passed by Congress. And that's where I get concerned. You know, we saw, we've seen President Trump reverse many actions taken by President Obama because President Obama said in his second term, well, after 2010, well, I still have a pen and a phone. So governance by executive order which is what the president has done, what President Trump has done, has the same lack of permanence as the actions of President Obama that have been reversed by President Trump. One of the big discussion items yesterday was the cancellation of US participation in the Iran nuclear deal. Now. We can all have different positions on that. Um, But here is the sad reality, that because of the Obama era deal, the Iranians got $150 billion and they've used that money to make mischief all over the Middle East. You know they arm the Houthis in Yemen. In Yemen, yeah, I got got up at four o'clock this morning. Um, they arm the the Houthis in Yemen. Uh, they fire missiles across the Red Sea, which is a major international shipping lane. Uh, they harass um, U.S. military um, ships in the same way in and near the Red Sea. They've trebled the number of missiles that Hezbollah has in Lebanon aimed at Israel. And they've given um, the same—they've given missiles to Hamas, which actually the UN has now declared to be a terrorist organization. So a whole lot of the mischief in the middle—and not to mention, we can't even calculate how much money— um, Iran has sunk into Syria, into the Assad government, into propping it up, not because they want Assad to be the, the ruler of Syria, but because they want to have control um, of a pathway to the Mediterranean Sea, which would go through, Leba- through Lebanon, thus all those Hezbollah missiles. So they've used that money to make a lot of mischief. And one of the things that President Trump put the most emphasis on yesterday was the U.S. declaration that the Golan Heights are not occupied but are uh, effectively Israeli territory now. From a military and logistic point of view, that is absolutely the right decision. From a humanitarian point of view, that is absolutely the right decision because the Druze population that inhabits the Golan Heights has been much better off. You know, they've gotten education and health care and, and services and security and and food, and, and medical care, et cetera, since the 67 uh, war, when um, the, the Syrians evacuated and lost the Golan Heights. The Golan Heights is absolutely essential to the safety and security of Israel as a nation, and absolutely right over the, the Sea of Galilee. So I, I applaud the president for his intention. But I worry again, that when we do it by executive order, what if, what if, you know, we got to defend 22 Senate seats to hold control of the Senate next year? What if both houses of Congress were democratic? What would happen to those assurances that, you know, we've now given to the Israelis? Well, um, Lindsey Graham, never to be, uh, you know, um, Lindsey's big passion is foreign relations. It is making sure that we are safe and that our allies are safe. And so he is going to, and he announced yesterday that he's going to um, put a bill in the hopper this week to give congressional um, approval to the U.S. position on the Golan Heights. Now, from my point of view, that would give me a sense of if if it passes, which and Trump will definitely sign it, um would give us a sense of permanence in that decision, but it has a downside. It has a big downside. And maybe we're just going to go take that commercial break that we're a minute away from and then we'll come back and we'll talk about all of these good things that President Trump has done and that he is attempting to continue to do. And what's the downside?
0: Now, back to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy on 860 AM, The Answer.
2: And we're back with... What concerns me about what President Trump uh, laid out yesterday um, in Las Vegas? so here's the downside. I've already said it with the exception of what Lindsey Graham is going to put into the congressional hopper this week, along with a bill with a with another bill which in fact would be a treaty between Israel and the United States, a mutual defense arrangement between um, the only democracy in the Middle East and the largest democracy in the world. Um, it is not part of NATO. <laughs> it is. It would be a bilateral uh, mutual defense treaty. I I'm, I I applaud um, Lindsey's effort. I'm skeptical that that can get past the Senate. Um, and if it gets past the Senate, can get on the floor of the House of Representatives as long as Nancy Pelosi is in charge of the House of Representatives. So, um, but, but it's, you know, I applaud the effort uh, because it's true. And there is a mutual dependency there in terms of the need for a beacon of democracy in the Middle East, if we don't want to be the policeman of the world. So um, I think that's a valid, um, it's a, it's a, an effort worth making. But here's what really bottom line worries me. Um, Secretary Pompeo was asked in in a hearing before the Foreign Relations Committee last week, when the famous Kushner uh, two-state solution peace plan was going to be unveiled, announced, whatever. And he chuckled and said, sometime in the next 20 years, because they were talking about it's been 20 years since we started down this path, okay? And, and so I take that to mean that the plan's not fully fleshed out. But here's my bigger concern. While I can applaud every single thing that President Trump has done in the Middle East, I think the price of all of those actions may have been too high because I cannot imagine under current circumstances, that the Palestinians see the United States of America as the honest broker to create a legitimate two-state solution that is sustainable. And I'm sad about that. I'm worried about that. Almost as worried about that as I am about the Iranians. And if that makes sense to you, um, you know, that that is my bottom line. Everything he's done is great, but one, another American president could reverse it all today. And and that's why Lindsey Graham's effort to get it through Congress is so important. But the other thing is, can the United States anymore be seen as the honest broker and thus the guarantor of a legitimate Palestinian state. That's a tough one. And Vince, you said you had a question about Jerusalem.
3: I'm not sure I get why it's such a big deal that the United States is recognizing Jerusalem as the capital, because I was uh, just looking online and it seems like pretty much every other country considers Jerusalem the capital. Um, The only countries, it seems like, that really don't like that idea are, well, I guess Saudi Arabia doesn't like that we um, recognized Jerusalem as the capital. And uh, apparently Sweden does not uh, recognize it as the capital, but everybody else recognizes it as the capital pretty much. Including um, Iran, of course, they they recognize it as the capital of Palestine. It seems like, uh, you know, all the the countries that sort of are, are allies of Israel support West Jerusalem as the capital and all the allies of the Palestinians recognize East Jerusalem as the capital of Palestine. So why is it such a big deal? Is it, is it just that the United States is late to the party? Is that what the deal is?
2: No. Um, actually, um, none of our NATO partners have their embassies in Jerusalem. They're all in Tel Aviv.
3: Yeah, they have their, their embassies there, but some of them, they, they still... They have a
2: consulate, some of them. Yeah, but they still, because they the... still
3: recognize it as the capital. though.
2: Well, that's questionable. That's, you know, we don't have a two-state solution. Finland,
3: Finland. Israel uh, considers Jerusalem to be its capital. The international community has not recognized it. The Finnish embassy is in Tel Aviv.
2: Yeah, and that's where most of the embassies are because it's part of disputed territory. East Jerusalem. Yeah. You know, the, the Israeli government has done a phenomenal job. It's one of the things I want to go and see right, has done a phenomenal job of excavating the old city. And if you're interested, if you as a listener are interested in that, um, you can go online uh, to the Israeli government site, and you will find a lot of information about the architectural digs that they've done. And they have found things like the Seven Springs, and they have found all the steps, and they've actually um, now been able to uncover all of the steps of Jesus' last walk with the cross, which is different than the, the traditional Christmas time or, or Easter time march. Um, it's a diff- somewhat different pattern. But, uh, and they have they've found some remnants of the um, first and second temples, et cetera. All of that's in East Jerusalem. East Jerusalem is the traditional home of the Jewish people from you know B- 2500 3000 years BC okay but the arabs after the um cleansing after the destruction of the second temple and the exile of um many uh, most of of um uh judea, judea, the dis judea the, the dispersion um that's been what has now been claimed with the um, Al Aqsa Mosque um, by um, Muslims as early as the days of the Crusades. And so that's why it's a really, really intense <coughs> argument about East Jerusalem. Um, and I've always thought the solution would be. That you would create an international city in which both countries could have their some of their capital facilities in the city of Jerusalem, but that is one of those things that has to be negotiated. But from the Israeli standpoint, the architectural digs to demonstrate <coughs> the earliest possession of the of of East Jerusalem, um, is really, really important. <coughs> and I think Vince has got a caller on the line, so. I'm going to deal with this frog in my throat. I've been doing a lot of yelling, <coughs> shouting. It's hard to get heard when you have 1,500 people in a room. <coughs> and so, um. So if we go back to my to my honest broker concerns that's one of the reasons I have that concern is that <clears throat> the the final disposition of Jerusalem as a capital for both faiths you know for all three faiths for Christianity for Judaism and for the Muslims is is one of the issues that has to be resolved some compromise created in order to have a two-state solution, and that would be, and, and again, I go back to my concern um, about whether or not the U.S. can be seen by the Palestinians as an honest broker. And Vince?
3: All right, why don't we do this? Let's take a break, and uh, we'll come back and take a call from Jacob, who uh, wants to, to, to chime in.
2: Okay.
0: Listening to Reimagine America on 8:60 a.m. The Answer. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy.
2: And we're back, and we've got Jacob on the line.
1: Yes, hello, Miss Cordy.
2: Good morning.
1: It's a privilege to be on your show, and I wanted to uh, ask you uh, a question about the Golan Heights position uh, of uh, President Trump. Sure. So, uh, generally speaking, most people looking into that decision, the background is the uh, Six-Day War, mm-hmm. and what some people have said was a uh, a war of conquest in the terms of uh, seizing the Golan Heights uh, area, and that was an objective. Others say it was very complicated. There was a lot of things uh, in flux at that time, and uh, there was a certain initiative that the Israeli government was taking, and uh, uh, amidst all of this was the USS Liberty. The ship uh, was about uh, longer than a football field. It was a huge ship filled with intelligence, uh, uh, surveillance, uh, electronics. Uh, They were there in international waters. They were attacked by the Israeli military uh and uh, the attempt was apparently to try to sink uh, the ship and kill all the crew and send it down to the bottom of the Mediterranean so uh, the crew saved the ship they had about a three dozen uh, fatalities, 171 or so uh, severely wounded, and the ship was burned with napalm. They had rocket uh, uh, strafings all over it, a torpedo hole and blown in the side of it. Uh, everything was a bloody uh, uh, meat locker uh, where uh, most of the below uh, waterline uh, people were uh, killed. So, What's that, the name uh, of the that, ship? That, that was the USS Liberty. It occurred on the 8th of June, on the 9th of June, Moshi Dayan and his forces were in uh, the Golan Heights. They waited one day. They wanted to get, some say, the USS Liberty out of the way so they could not be uh, obstructed in any way militarily when they made their move.
2: i well, know I'm, I'm going to say... Um that my understanding of history is a little different. I have never heard of the USS Liberty. There has absolutely never been a time when the Israelis fired upon a United States military vessel um, in recorded history, although Vince is going to do a quick Google on the USS Liberty while we chat, Uh, And the Six-Day War actually was um, historically an attack, an unprovoked attack by the um, surrounding Arab nations on Israel. And that attack took place from the Golan Heights, which is a Druze settlement. It was part of Syria at the time. Um, and the Syrians have been um have been involved in every single one of the wars in 48 and in, in 67 in um the Yom Kippur war et cetera. um and it, it is um you know again i Vince is going to look this up but I have never heard of a US military vessel ever being I mean
3: No he's he's right.
2: We attacked a vessel
3: uh, no, uh, we were attacked by, okay, the USS Liberty incident was an attack on a U.S. Naval Technical Research ship by Israeli Air Force jet fighter aircraft Wow! and, and Israeli Navy motorboat torpedoes. It was on June 8th, 1967 during the Six Day War and the combined combined air and sea attack killed 34 crew members. And uh, Israel apologized for the attack. Nice of them. Uh, and they claimed that the USS Liberty had been attacked in error after being mistaken for an Egyptian warship. And uh, the US, the Israeli government, paid the US three point three two million, and that would be the equivalent of about twenty four million in today's uh, number. In today's uh, dollars uh, that was the compensation they paid to the for the families of the thirty four men killed so they claimed that it was an error and they misidentified the ship as an Egyptian ship
2: I can only imagine that that is true because there is no closer alliance but how could that happen so Jacob that's, that's, Thank you.: thank Yeah, that's you.
3: that's why there's you know, conspiracy theories about it, that maybe they were collecting something that the Israelis didn't want them to.
2: It's always between two spies, but I tell you what, I will um, um, I'll make some calls and get to the bottom of it. Um, but but thank you for improving my knowledge because I had never heard that story. Um, and it and your point, Jacob, adds can, adds to my concern about whether or not the United States should act in a unilateral way in the in the Middle East conflict.
3: Hello, Jacob, you still there? Yes, and uh,
1: it's quite interesting uh, from presidential actions uh, on the part of uh, President Johnson at that time when there were just uh, minimal uh, deaths. Uh, and um, uh, wounded uh, at, at the outset of the attack. Uh, local commanders set uh, rescue jets. President Johnson personally got on the uh, uh, satellite phone, talked directly with the ships involved, and told them to uh, order their uh, rescue jets to return back to their ship and don't try to help at all the USS Liberty crew and that ship.
2: You know, again, i, I- if this is a story, um, i've never heard, and And so I really appreciate the fact that you've raised this question, um, and I'm going to do my research, and we will talk about it again next week. Is that fair?
1: Well, it's sort of like a reverse Passover, instead of getting uh, spared with the bloody sacrifice of, of those uh, uh, U.S. citizens uh, on board the ship, uh, splattered above the doors, if you will, of the ship of the Eastern Mediterranean, uh, it was actually an entrance to uh, carnage.
2: I, I completely understand that. And, you know, uh, the love of my life was a career naval officer, and so, you know, I I, I feel I feel for those lost sailors in a way you don't know. So um, I will. I'm going to do my research and understand um, and see if I can find out more fully how it happened, what's the context of it, where it was within the conflict, and see if we can kind of come to some understanding of how this whole thing happened. I, I'm not in in no way, Jacob. Am I saying um, um, that I believe that uh, that I'm that I, you know, that the United States can award the Golan Heights to Israel without all of the parties being a part of the discussion? Does does that make sense in in the especially in the aftermath of what you're saying?
1: I appreciate your attempts to, uh, with uh, perhaps limited information, to uh, uh, see the bigger picture. But uh, there is a bigger picture, and there is a sacrifice. Uh, put it in the category of a sort of a reverse Passover uh, on the, what happened to the U.S. liberty, and uh, it was a uh, just a total abomination.
2: I would say that that was yes. I mean, we, we, we refer to it as the fog of war, but I think you're absolutely right. It was horrible that it happened. Um, amazing that President Johnson would order um, a U.S. military um, not, to inter- not to try to save the crew of a U.S. military vessel uh, since we have an ethos that says we don't leave anyone behind. So I promise I will go do my homework, and we'll talk this through again next week. How about that?
1: Okay, thank you so much, Miss Courtney. Well, Gordon.
2: thank you. I appreciate the information. So we've got we're going to run out of time today. So speaking of Navy, speaking of the Navy. Um, I do promise we'll go figure all this USS Liberty out in the context of the war, and we'll come back and give you a brief overview next week. But one of the high points of this weekend, photos will follow, uh, was that I met Dan Crenshaw, the the Navy uh, uh, SEAL-turned-Texas-Congressman, TV celebrity, thank you, Saturday Night Live. Um, What an incredibly brave, smart, capable man he is. Um, uh, really an admirable person uh, who, from the time his the his dad was in the oil business, but from the time he was in high school, he knew he wanted to be a Navy SEAL. So after college, he went into the Navy, um, served as a SEAL, was hit with an IED in Afghanistan. It took out completely one of his eyes and there was a time when they thought it would take him both his eyes. He spent a year at Walter Reed recovering. And you know what he did after that? He went back to Afghanistan. He couldn't be in combat anymore, but he went back as an intelligence officer. And then when he retired, um, went to to the Kennedy School for Government, got a master's degree and is now serving as a first term congressman. Um, and he's somebody we need to watch. Um, he is uh, the classic, uh, you know, he's he's a classic uh, personal responsibility, um, uh, small government, conservative, um, extremely well-spoken, really great sense of humor, really, really funny guy. And, you know, amazingly, not all that much taller. You know, he's not a really tall guy. There's a picture of of um, he and I and one of my favorite listeners and we'll post it on Reimagine America and you'll be surprised at, at the fact that he's um, maybe 5'9 at the most um, but I think we need to keep an eye on Dan Crenshaw I think he is going to be No
3: pun intended right?
2: No no, no pun intended although, uh, I have a
3: question though yeah. have, Did he show you his Captain America glass eye?
2: No I, I, I was too chicken to ask
3: Oh <laughs> I'd want to see that.
2: I would love to see it. But uh, like I said, he has a fabulous sense of humor. Um, and so I I think we need to keep an eye on him. Um, and if I were Ted Cruz, I'd be watching really carefully. So we are going to run out of time. Um and so I'm gonna tell you an, about another American hero. One, I am gonna go research this USS Liberty story because I have never heard that story.
3: I've I, I vaguely remember it. Um Not that I was around when it
2: happened. I was gonna say, you know, uh, um I mean and and maybe that's when, you know, when you say President Johnson I go, Woo, you know, tune out. I'm not sure I was tuned into politics at that point. Um and and so I will go research that.
3: We got to take a break.
2: Are we going to take a break? Yeah, we
3: got to take a break.
2: We have to take another break. We got to pay these bills. We'll be right back.
0: Now, back to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy on 8:60 a.m. The Answer.
2: And we're back, and we've got just about four minutes. So um, four Republican governors, Abbott of Texas, Ricketts of Nebraska, the two of them argued about who has more awards for being the best at developing an economy and cutting taxes over how many successive years. That's a record you will not see in California where there is a proposal for at least a dozen new taxes. Um, also, a woman, the first woman governor of South Dakota, her name is Christy Noem, and her accomplishment was to get um, diversity on the campus, uh, you know, all this thought control of, by the left. Um, the assembly in South Dakota, the legislature passed a mandatory diverse thought Uh, process for um, South Dakota colleges. Uh, This is her first legislative session, plus a budget, plus a few other important pieces um, to control um, riots around a pipeline um, building because the the Keystone is going to go through South Carolina, uh, South Dakota, excuse me, and they've seen what happened to their neighbors to the north. So they have put Uh, legislation in place. If you're going to start, if you start a riot or you come from out of state to try to boost uh, activism, um, you can be civilly sued in South Dakota. And you know how long, and you know how long it took them to do all of this? 40 days. Their whole legislative session is already over, and she's going back to ranching. Now, she's a former congresswoman Uh, extremely well-spoken, a really nice person, and again, somebody we need to keep our eye on as we uh, look toward 2020 and 2024. Next week, we're going to have a really interesting guest here in the studio, Dan Trimble, who is a Coast Guard reservist, a reserve officer. Uh, is going to be with us, and Dan has just been awarded a um, one of the highest honors uh, the Coast Guard can give for three years of meritorious service, leading a team working on cyber um, and cybersecurity issues for the Coast Guard and the Department of Homeland Security. And so he and I have planned a couple of shows that are going to talk to you about why does cyber matter to you? You know why why does this matter? Um, and then, you know, what cybersecurity is. And, of course, he, he can't tell us everything. Um, and, <clears throat> and we're also going to have another guest to talk a little bit about what 5G is and why that's important to the U.S. economy. So next week, I promise you, in addition to a really interesting conversation with Dan Trimble, an answer to this USS Liberty And um, no frog in my throat. Have a great week.
0: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.